Hello, and welcome to the Recapables Billions. My name is Sean Fennessy. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and I am joined by the Nwengi Malmsteen of coding. It's The Ringer's Mallory Rubin. Mal, what's up? Sean, I was beginning to think you were done teaching me. <laughs> well, the teaching has just begun. We're here to talk about Compenso, which is the 11th episode of the third season of Billions, which is just a wonderful show, and I'm delighted to be talking about it with Mal. I don't accept. I never made that much at your age. I've accomplished more than you had. But you don't have your own shop. If you were ready for that, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be looking at a tailor-shaped hole in the wall. 20 is as much as anybody's ever gotten out of me. Learn to be rich on that. And I was beginning to think you were done teaching me. Mal, let's go right directly into the 42-second recap of this show. Go. Oh, my goodness. Okay. No time for small talk. I was going to say that I'm also delighted to be here with you and delighted to be talking about Billions again. Truly one of my favorite programs. All right, (laughs) 42-second recap. Let's go. Kaya, start the clock. Neither Chuck nor Axe can learn from their past mistakes as both are pursuing new courses. In Chuck's case, a fresh path to trying to take down Chuck Jeffcoat while simultaneously repairing his fractured relationship with Ira. In Axe's case, a naked me-first attitude that is alienating his own people. They are both so focused on their new goals that they are blind to how their one-time students are attempting to take down the masters. As Connerty has sniffed out a new opening in his quest to undo Chuck and Taylor has decided to put their algorithm into action, but not for Axe. Taylor will be launching their own firm, the truly awfully named Taylor Mason Capital. (laughs) Shorten that shit. Mace Cap. Come on. Mace Capital. (laughs) Chuck Sr. suggests using lime juice in a way that cannot possibly be safe or recommended. Wendy once again gets rich off what will eventually surely prove to be a mistake. And of course, everyone eats steak. Wow, well done. I, Kaya, I don't know if that actually hit 42 seconds, but this was, um, as usual, an action-packed, narrative-packed, content-packed episode of Billions. I may or may not have taken eight pages of notes. Yeah, I have quite a few notes in front of me myself. (laughs) I suspect we'll be quoting and referencing and identifying many of the things that happened in this episode. Let me just say, I thought it was a great episode. And I love this show so much. And it's actually one of the few shows that I think it is fun to take notes on because it is so action-packed with um, not just quotes and not just plot, but ideas. And maybe we can start a little bit at the top talking about some of the themes of the episode before we get into the proper categories. Would love to. Did you have any alternate names for the episode? I did. You want me to say some of them? Yeah. Okay. They're all plays on the opening scene guest star. Yeah, same. Um, I only had one. Salt Bay Betrayal. Oh, that's good. I had a Worth Your Salt (laughs) and Salt the Earth. And I think, you know, Taylor is kind of the inflection point on both of those titles. Let's talk about it. What what did you think was sort of the primary theme of this episode and maybe even the season? Well, I think it's the episode, the season, and the show. Hubris. Mm -hmm. And typically I associate that word, you know, with all the characters, but mostly with Chuck. He always feels like the one who is least aware of his own hypocrisy and least aware of how his machinations are going to probably result in his own undoing. This was one of the first episodes in a long time where I really felt more let down by X 
cheeks than by Chuck, which is not a familiar sensation for me. There were multiple times where I wanted to reach through my screen and grab Axe by his shoulders and shake him and say, how can you not see that the conversation you just had with your former boss at the Regency is literally the storyline that is playing out with you and Taylor right now? It's totally fascinating. I had a couple of other broad concepts. I think hubris is every episode of the show, right? And in particular way, fatherhood and brotherhood seem to be like a a dividing point here. Brother I chose. Yeah, brother I chose. Exactly that great reference that Chuck makes to uh, Ira. And self-worth. Yes. And the difficulties of, and I'm hoping you'll be able to explicate some of this, the idea of menschkite and what that means and what it means to be uh, a good and decent person while still also doing your job effectively. Right. And there's a lot here about money and power and worth that is more at the fore than it usually is. Yes. Let's get into the categories a little bit and use that as a way to discover some of these ideas. Okay. Okay, Let's do it. What was your most scarring moment? Oh, this is easy. And I want to be clear that while I think this was inarguably the most scarring moment, I loved everything about it. And I was glad, dare I say, honored to be scarred by this moment. Charles Sr. Yeah, let's, we have to break down this entire scene. <laughs> it is like simultaneously maybe the only scene in the episode that has really no bearing on the plot and also felt like the most important thing that had ever happened in my life. I, I, would, I would like to just, <laughs> to just recite some of this. So basically the, the background for this moment is that Chuck, Salt Bay brings people together and Chuck is there at the restaurant with Sacker and Carl and then spots across the room Ira, his long-lost bestie and great love. And meanders over because he's Chuck. He can't help himself. They start catching up. Chuck notices that Ira is married to Tyga. Did not know this was this character's name. Me neither. Is this the first we're hearing the name? I'm, I'm not certain, but I have to think so because I feel like we all would have remembered that because the thing I found myself obsessing over for most of the episode was, is this spelled like Tyga, like the rapper? Me too. I, I I could only picture Tyga when she wasn't on screen, the rapper. Yes. And th- that also may have been a beautiful union between <laughs> Ira and Tyga. Um, Possibly so. But yeah, on a show that is just ha- tremendous at naming people, T-A-I-G-A is, is a gift. Really something special. And so Chuck and Ira are catching up and Chuck learns that Ira, who of course got 30 mil payday from Axe for ratting out Chuck. And of course, let's never forget the engagement ring. In addition to that, why should she have to suffer? One of Axe's (laughs) best moments of the season. And Ira shares with Chuck that things are not going super well financially. Tyga has a yoga empire she wants to start. So many issues. Can't lock down a space. Something about hypoallergenic (laughs) materials. And Chuck, of course, is bullshit. detector goes off and he can tell that something suspicious is going on here. So over the course of the episode, whether he's going to Pete Decker or to Anthony, who we will find out is is Tyga's boyfriend, he is trying to basically piece this together to salvage Ira's fortune. He wants to be, there's no prenup, we learned. So he wants to be able to get Ira out of this sham marriage because that is what they learn. She is just bilking Ira for all of his cash so that she can go buy a nicer apartment with Anthony. And Chuck calls Tyga into Charles Sr.'s home. He asks, Pop, can I use your apartment? Mom's out of town. And Sr.'s like, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you knew you could come to me with this. Things have been rough, but smart of you not to use a hotel. He thinks it's an affair. And of course, Senior would know that it's not smart to use in a hotel Lord for his affairs. extramarital activities. Chuck Senior. 
And in the course of this conversation where Chuck is trying to say to Tyga, sign this post-nup, it's 50K a year for every year in the marriage, so you're going to leave this marriage with 50K, right? You're going to go home, tell Ira, I want out, but I want to do it with integrity. And then senior parachutes in. He wasn't supposed to be there. And here's what he said. Try harder. Give marriage seven years before you even entertain the notion of divorce. From the day the Dorsey brothers showed that Presley boy swiveling his hips, there's been a slow but steady erosion of the family. Then he goes on to recommend different friend groups and running a lot. And then he continues, quote, take your birth control pills and flush them. Make that kid your project together. Now, imagine being Chuck and hearing your father talk this way about how a offspring can be the one thing that intentionally, deliberately you choose to produce so that you can hold your marriage together. Quote continues, this is the best part. And if Ira doesn't know how to fuck you, you teach him. (laughs) And Chuck goes, okay, yeah. And then Senior continues, I'm not done. One more thing. Give yourself the lime test. You stick your finger in lime juice and put it up inside. And if it stings, get yourself cleaned out. Do not bring the clap home to your husband. It's uncivil. Okay, I I rewound this scene four times uh, when it happened. It's it's obviously just an incredible, upsetting, oddly truthful, but also deeply not right and 1957 version of Union. Yes. It's actually interesting to like try to figure out what still makes sense and what of it, the Lyme test in particular, is That's like deeply unright. That's not how science unright. works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have I have some like problems with maybe the construction of the scene, which is I really don't understand why they needed to go to Chuck Senior's apartment to have this conversation. Well, of course, I, I mean it's just ludicrous. The the idea that Chuck can attempt to bring down the United States Attorney General just like out in various government buildings, but does not feel comfortable talking to Tyga anywhere but his father's home is is patently absurd. And yet it led to this conversation, so I accept it fully. Me too, and it actually underscores. Um, when we see scenes that don't really make sense and we're very critical of them, we don't and we don't give them a pass, right? Because they're not good enough. This scene is good enough that it gets a pass for being totally. completely illogical. Um, actually, something that Chuck says prior to the, that speech, prior to bursting in on Chuck Jr. and uh, Tyga, um, <laughs> is, is probably, I don't want to spoil too much of my favorite quotes of the scene, but um, once Chuck Jr. reveals that it's not an affair, but that in fact he's meeting with Ira's wife, Chuck Sr. says, so it's not concupiscence, it's menschkeit. I'm even prouder. (laughs) And that's a ridiculous collection of words that no human would say in succession. (laughs) But it is is back to that theme that I was uh, mentioning earlier. And there's there's just something amazing happening between Chuck Jr. and Chuck Sr. this season. And at first I thought it was a little patently absurd. And now I'm I'm really feeling like it's kind of the pulse of the show in a lot of ways. And, it's, and, it, and it completely mirrors what's happening with Axe and Taylor. Right. So let me ask you this. In theory, Charles Sr. should know his son at this point, especially after the backstabbing and betrayals and attempts to repair their relationships that we've seen play out over the last season. Do you think he actually understands anything about who Chuck is, how he behaves, or why. Because nothing about Chuck is actually in line with Menschkeit to me. Not at all. Chuck is Neither the embodiment Chuck. of the antithesis of that. No, but they both are the kinds of people that in public 
offer that as an idea. They offer it as sort of their reputation, even though behind the scenes, I think part of the show is meant to reveal that all people who present it in this way are liars, are dishonest, and you have to examine why. But the fact that Chuck Sr. does hold that concept as relevant and true, and he's willing to even say it to his son who he doesn't understand, would never have an affair in a hotel, would, is much more likely to be in a BDSM dungeon. Um, <laughs> Which he should know by now, having, of course, he, having appeared at this very dungeon. He exposed that. It says everything that you need to know about their relationship, that father doesn't know son. Right. I thought that in many ways, Chuck's storyline in this episode where, again, Chuck is very much the embodiment of the, the villain thinks he's the hero storytelling trope. In a way that Axe is not, because Axe embraces the fact that he's the villain, and that's why I've always found his character more refreshing. This episode, now that Chuck has repositioned himself once again as the man of the people, the only pursuer of justice, this really felt like a reminder that he is just, he can't stop projecting, and he cannot identify or escape his own hypocrisy. Here's one of the things I I believe about life, me personally. Wow, here we go. There's no such thing as true, pure altruism, right? I believe there are good people in the world. I believe that people do good things. I don't think you could wake up in the morning if you didn't think that. But I believe that self-interest is just inextricable from life, right? It is part of the human condition. And Chuck really represents that in a finely pointed way that I I just find like endlessly fascinating. And that's why even though I don't root for him and I don't want him to win, I love the character and I love the storyline. And when he and Wendy are having a conversation in this episode about Ira and Chuck is quoting Hamlet, which we'll get to later in, uh, do we call Shakespeare a pop culture reference? Uh, we will, for the purposes so. of this podcast. The grander universe of pop culture. Indeed. And when Wendy is saying, you want to be the hero, and Chuck says, if I pull it off and make him well, does the reason really matter? And that is, we always talk about, whoever's hosting this podcast always talks about how Billions has these mission statements consistently throughout every episode. And that's one of them. Like, does your vote motivation matter or is it just the the end that you're able to achieve? And I think Chuck has completely lost sight of what his motivations even are, but they are definitely not purely to help other people. They mm-hmm. are to further his own ambition. Yeah, and it's all under the veil of justice in a way that any common person is not. You know, he literally has a job in which do right is the is the goal. That right. he, he is meant to do that at all times. And whether that's upending his boss, becoming the governor, taking down acts, all of these different missions that he has set for himself – ostensibly, they're about the greater good. It's not about the greater good of, like, one man's life. It's the greater good of a society. And he's a he's a, he's a bad person. Right. That's the great lie that he tells himself, is that he's pursuing the greater good, but he's not. He's pursuing the idea that he can be the one who brings the greater good about. He learned it all from Dad. Um, <laughs> I'm going to share with you a definitely a distant second, but a scarring moment. Yeah. Um, which is the scene in which Axe and Lara almost rekindle their love. Horrible. Uh, I was disgusted. Just awful. Um, I, I, I care deeply for Brian Koppelman and David Levine, but I, I <laughs> almost retched when uh, I saw them go in for the kiss. I'm glad that they didn't do that. You know, just please no more Lara. Like, the, the, uh, even worse than the kiss, I thought, was the very like gentle, delicate like finger grazing because that's like actually like that that reflects some level of sincere affection yeah. that they might still feel for each other and I don't want that. I don't want that at all. 
And then, of course, Lyra has to, even, even in a moment where you, okay, you think to yourself, can I feel any tenderness toward these people? Like, is it possible? And she has to follow up Axe's advance by saying, come on, Bobby, we're not going to get sloppy, are we? And he says, no, I guess not. And then she says, I'll pick up the kids tomorrow. Like the lawyers agreed. Truly the worst person on television. She's terrible. Uh, I had one more tiny, 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 tiny scarring moment. Okay, go ahead. Chuck saying about Jock Jeffcoat, we either line dance on Jock's grave or he will most assuredly be doing the tush push on ours. I've got that on my list too. Very, very unfortunate. ever hear Paul Giamatti say tush push again. Deeply unfortunate. Um, <laughs> also just in in front of Sacker, who, who I adore and just she doesn't deserve that and Carl doesn't deserve that. None, none of us deserve <laughs> Great that. Great Carl episode. Very good Carl. Alan Havey, <laughs> longtime stand-up comedian, well-known as a... a a strong mat, late season Mad Men uh, yeah, appearance, but a, a lot of heavy this 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 year, and I, I've enjoyed it. Um, Pure velvet. Let's make a jump to best quotes. Let's do it. This so was, many this week. I got a lot. I, I already dropped the concupiscence uh, <laughs> note in there. I think the tush push I put in there as well, even <laughs> oh, though God, it's horrifying. You had that on a best well, here's the thing: it jumps out. What's wrong with it you? It jumps out. No. It's effective. Okay, I think that there's there's a couple of different versions here. There is the sincerity and the poetry of some of these lines yes. and then there is the comedy of some of these lines right so right. every week we have to of course balance the two um i was genuinely touched when ira when confronted in his apartment with pete decker said i gave up on a marriage once i've regretted it every day since that was lovely very nice sentiment and you know this is a show that like doesn't really favor sincerity a lot of the time and they've created an interesting arc for ira he also had that beautiful Genuinely pretty touching moment with Chuck where when he reveals that there's no prenup and, and Chuck says, Ira, you're a fucking lawyer. And Ira says, for once, I didn't want to be. I wanted to be a romantic. That was really lovely. Good stuff. It's ben nice Shankman's to have great. moments of like real heart in the middle of all of this chaos and anarchy. I agree. Give me one. I, oh my, I had so many. I had a lot from Axe this week. My, my first one on the list here is... <laughs> I have to say, I'm glad to be doing a, a, a podcast about an episode that was largely about performance reviews and compensation with my boss. And this is uh, truly delightful. This is complicated. I Re- hope read, every- <laughs> read nothing into my choices here. <laughs> I hope every member of the Ringer staff is listening closely to this episode. Zero subtext to anything either of us says in this episode. Uh, Axe says early on in the episode when, when chatting with uh, Wags and Wendy about comp day at Axe Capital, he says, I like to leave him that way. Let the hunger set in. Starvation in small doses triggers an increase in energy, clarity, aggression. Right up until it kills you. I just loved that whole exchange. Definitely, yeah. That's a totem for, for the ringer.com. <laughs> it truly is. And then when Axe and Taylor are having Taylor's first comp discussion, because there will be more than one, and Axe comes in low. Well, low, I mean... God, 15 million for a bonus, but compared to Taylor's, I, I think I should get 50. 15 is low. And they go back and forth. Taylor sketches out everything that they have done to keep the firm afloat. And one of the comebacks that Axe has is, might be, but then again, I was the client. So you're kind of comparing apples to my money. <laughs> Amazing. I... 
I, we just we were here. We work at a scrappy media company. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're a young startup. Two year anniversary mm-hmm. today. Happy, Happy birthday, anniversary. Ringer. So I don't really understand. I've been in my fair share of compensation conversations, but none quite like this. Right. And I think obviously it's very axed to pursue things like this. But I wonder if this is how things work in in the kind of the trading the hedge fund game this way. I, is it reasonable to just walk into someone's office and say fifty million dollar bonus, please? Has anyone ever done that in the history of that business? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess we get enough context in the course of not only Axe's discussions with Taylor, but then Axe's conversations with Lara and Wendy about his conversations with Taylor to understand unambiguously that he has never paid out anything close to the figure that Taylor is asking for. Because one of the things he says later in the conversation, and I also have this down as a quote of the week for the Taylor reply, Axe says, 20 is as much as anybody's ever gotten out of me. Learn to be rich on that. Learn to be rich on that is like quietly just beautiful phrasing and Mm -hmm. expert writing. And the way Damian Lewis delivered that line was really good. And then Taylor comes back with, and I was beginning to think you were done teaching me, which is a declaration of war. There's no way. And that's one of the reasons that I was so disappointed with Axe in this episode. There's no way to read that statement as anything other than I have grown beyond you. And unless you make me feel like that's not true, I'm gone. Interesting how you opened this podcast by quoting that line, Melanie. <laughs> not sure what you mean. Um, <laughs> I completely agree. And the other thing, too, is that we understand Axe to have a tremendous foresight, an incredible strategist maneuvering his way through this very complicated landscape at all times. And yet somehow he seems to not understand that Taylor is desperately on the brink of breaking free from him, right. even though they have become so important to what happens at Axe Capital. Also, not to undermine Taylor too much, but has Taylor really created a $50 million bonus worth of value? Not to be the manager of this situation, but what the hell are they talking about? It's, that's a good question. And I think that's where your question about are the figures that are in play here even reasonable or real? Like, I, I just don't know. I have, one thing about Billions is like, I'm as deeply into this show as I think a person can, can, safely or sanely be, but I will never understand the financial aspects of it. Taylor does sketch out the money. When Taylor first says, I was thinking 50, then goes on to say that Axe Capital made $929 million that year, 700 with expenses. Quote, seeing as I ran the place for most of the time, less than one-tenth of the profit seems more than fair. And that's when Axe comes back with the Apple's and my money line. You could argue, and that's what Taylor's doing, that just being the steward for this period of time, when it wasn't just about turning a profit, it was about sustaining the entire existence of the company, that there's a there's a price on that that is is not comparable to anything in other years. And what's interesting about that, I think, is we actually hear some similar messaging from Axe to other people. Like when he's talking to Mafi, great scene. I loved the series of like jump cuts from one comp conversation to the next. And especially because the Axe Taylor conversation is so fraught. It was really refreshing to get the comic relief of the Bonnie, Ben Kim, Mafi scene. And I have a quote of the week candidate from the Ben Kim one in a moment. But Axe says to Mafi, basically, the money you earn this year is not a repeatable trick. And part of that is because of what Mafi did for Wendy. There was so much 
that was earned or lost because of the legal cases and because of everything that every single person in the firm had to think about at every moment that maybe Taylor really does deserve 50 for basically not letting people leave or leaving themselves. I guess. Also, Axe is rich. Really rich. That's the thing. This is the first time that Axe seemed small when he was talking about money. Like, Axe has always felt very shrewd, very calculating. You, I mean, let's never forget that he was able to get to this position in the first place because he profited off 9-11. Like, yes. Axe is a shit, shit, shit human. Yeah, dark core. But he's always been really generous with his people. It's true. I, I felt it a lot more acutely when we see him ground down by the end of the episode and he's haggling with his lawyer, Oren, over a $10 million fee, which oh, he is yeah. trying to bust down to $9 million. And Oren makes the, you know, somewhat melodramatic point that that $1 million would mean the world to the dozens of associates who worked hard on his case. And to him, it's a drop in the bucket. But I think it's, it's you know, one of my favorite quotes in the episode actually is when Wendy confronts Axe about how Taylor should be compensated. Mm -hmm. And she makes reference to the concept of death by a thousand cuts. Yes. And Axe says, I'm at 999 and I'm sticking. Right. And, you know, you sense that when somebody is that powerful, that wealthy, with that much access to wield that wealth, sometimes it just feels like someone's asking for something all the time. Someone's always asking for something. They always want something. They always want more. I'm not sure I empathize with that feeling necessarily, but you can see why Axe, who is a petty and competitive person, would just feel threatened and, and, and undermined by that. So— Funny you should say that. That's one of my other quote of the week candidates is acts about midway through the episode when Wendy is, is in essence, making that point. Just say yes. Just do it. It is nothing to you. It is everything to this other person. And Axe says, I could say yes. This is actually specifically about putting Taylor on the raise team, not even about the, the dollar amount and the bonus. I could say yes. Why don't I want to say yes, though? Because it's yet another accommodation. I got this rich so I could stop making them. But... The thing is, that doesn't feel, to me at least, it didn't feel true to Axe's character or to the Axe that we have come to love and root for despite what a garbage person he is. And I think that the point you're making is right and perfectly logical, but I would argue the inverse, which is Axe only survived this because people stayed loyal to him. Because somebody like Dollar Bill was willing to admit that he had a second family rather than rat out Axe. Because D Taylor didn't take Connerty up on that cookie tray way back when in season two. And so... Great callback. Thank you. I was just like, who doesn't take a cookie? It really stuck with me. I've never once been offered a cookie and said no. Some real, real Malruven shit right there, yeah. So I get it. You know, Axe also says elsewhere in this episode, like, why do any of these people deserve any money? I'm the one who makes all the money. And so if you're thinking that way, sure, why give away what you're earning? But he has never struck me before this episode as a character who felt like he was the only one building something. That feels different. Not the power of me, the power of we. It's true. Can I, can I give you a couple more quotes? Let's bust through some more quotes. I know yeah. we're running long here. I, I quite enjoyed the Axe-Ben-Kim comp meeting where Ben opens with... I think I should not throw out the first number because I have a tendency to undervalue myself. I'd like to make you a PM. Portfolio manager? I would have gone prime minister, but there you go, undervaluing. 
followed shortly thereafter by meet your new salary, same as the old salary, <laughs> which is phenomenal. Excellent. Uh, every almost every line that happens from Bonnie to Mafi to Ben Kim is is really really funny. The Undertaker reference to Mafi yeah, yeah. is some great wrestling. There's two great wrestling references followed up by the King Kong King Bundy Kong reference. Bundy. Um, Bonnie's reference to the purple people eaters. Tremendous. Golden. I mean, we'll talk more about pop culture references, but this one is just littered with sports. Tons. Um, yeah, I, that whole sequence was very fun. It was very rat-a-tat. It was reminding me a lot of like Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. You know, it was very like, meet the gang. The gang's got jokes. We're hard cutting. We're fast. It's a little different than this sort of chamber drama that we get sometimes with the show where there's two very serious people and they're seated together and they're discovering the truth about the universe. This was just like joke, 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 joke. Right. Which was great. Right. Well, also, I mean, you're Mafi and you're, you're, you're clearing north of two mil in bonuses this year for basically being a goofball who watches wrestling. So what do you have to complain cool about? Cool life. Really? Very cool life. And, I, you know, I mentioned um, Oren uh, earlier and I thought his line, which was teased in the commercial, but I thought was even more powerful in the episode, which is a win isn't a win unless it's a kill. Yes. Uh, that was that maybe that is the core philosophy of Axe. And he's he I think it's important to note. Warren has always been an Axe admirer, but in that moment, he is not saying that with admiration. He is saying that with judgment and concern. He, it felt as if he was losing him. It yes. felt as if he was losing Warren in that moment. Truly. A couple other very, very quick ones. Taylor has a great line when speaking to Wendy. I won't stagnate, not for Axe, not for anybody. That's Taylor's mission statement right there in one line. Wendy to Axe when trying to get him to sort of see the light and remember how important his people are. There's no amount of money that frees you from being a person. This was like a little corny, but also actually pretty important. And as I increasingly grow concerned about Wendy's ability to actually deduce what play is right and more importantly, what the ra- long-term ramifications of the advice that she's giving are, I thought that was like actually sage counsel in a way that has become increasingly rare for her. Uh, I thought it was interesting how you noted too in the 42-second recap that you think Wendy is potentially um, making errors that will lead to some sort of downfall. Yeah. But that's been the case all season. Mm-hmm. I mean— There's the read on Wendy's season that is just every single conversation she's having now boils down to, go get him. It's your turn, which is like not really the sort of uh, a subtle, detailed, well thought out character assessment and advice that she's supposed to be giving people. It just seems like almost she's she's morphed slightly with Gus, the 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 bike bicycle guy with the shark tooth necklace, who was like. I'm just here to make you a killer. And it seems like Wendy's doing a little bit more of that than before. But like, for example, when Axe gives Wendy her bonus, he says, you're basically the only person here who earns the money every day. And in that moment, he's referring to the fact that Wendy was willing to go find Lara and they hate each other. The Lara-Wendy beef is is an endless source of entertainment on this show. But Wendy was willing to go find Lara to say, Lara, you're the only one who can get Bobby to see clearly here. He needs you. Why? Like, this is ridiculous to me. I agree. Wendy and Wags can't get Axe to make a decision, but Lara can. And I guess, you know, there's that one moment earlier in the show where before Axe goes to the Regency, he's like creepily stalking Lara from his car. So I think from that, we're supposed to assume that he wanted to seek her counsel and then kind of couldn't bring himself to do it. But the net result of that conversation is that Lara convinces Axe to pay Taylor Moore and to put her back on the Rays team, which Axe then does, having no idea that he is just giving more money, more information, and more power to someone who's about to try to cut his throat. 
that's not good. Also, I, I just, it, it's not possible for me to believe that Chuck is going to escape his Jock Jeffcoat pursuit cleanly. And of course, Wendy not only is encouraging him in that pursuit, but was the one who told him to not pursue the governorship and to stay in the Southern District for reasons that remain like completely unclear to me. I wonder if the uh, if we're just meant to believe that Wendy has just completely lost her way this year, even though because Maggie Siff is such an effective actress and she has such a cool demeanor at all times, it never really feels like it's out of control, but she's making a series of wrong moves here that are going to lead to the downfall of maybe the two most important men in her life. Right. But that's part of it, is that she had a chance to finally make sure that they were in different spheres. This show's got to go eight seasons, Mel. You know, we got to make well, choices. That's true. Keep the engine running. Uh, let's jump to pop culture references now that we've made some allusions to I it. I have one more. Okay, go ahead. One more, and I, I, Ever I the have maximalist. to share it because it's our favorite character, Senior. I've always said monogamy is a form of socialism. <laughs> <laughs> In an episode that is primarily driven by compensation, that is a, a perfect... End note. Um, um, pop culture references of the week. Yes. We've dropped a few of them. We mentioned uh, some of the sports references, Purple People Eaters, Leonard Cohen, The Undertaker, King Kong Bundy. I'll give you my number one, and it's an opportunity to talk about a greater connected universe. Okay. My number one is you're not a greaser anymore, Axe. You're a soch now, which is obviously a direct reference to The Outsiders, yes. S.C. Hinton's beautiful novel about teenage rebellion and uh, the subsequent film. It's uttered by a character named Bill McGann. Yes who is Axe's ex-boss, I guess we're meant to believe. Yes. And is played by the the great and little seen of late Corbin Burnson, who I think fans of L.A. Law and most especially Major League, where he plays Roger Dorn, uh, will remember him from. Interesting to, I think, spotlight the idea of Axe as the kid from the streets who is now moneyed and has all the power. You know, yes. a very precise reference to uh, to the outsiders there. Just tremendous. I had that down under pop culture references as well. And the the scene in the in the Regency where Axe goes and challenges this man, his former boss, a couple things about this are notable. One, we learn instantly, we get years and years of history in one moment because Bill McC McCann, McGann? I think it's McGann. McGann says when Axe shows up at his table, can't you skip a year? So we know that Axe does this every single year. On comp day at Axe Capital, when he is shelling out money to his people for the work that they have done, the value that he sees in them, he goes to hunt down his former boss and say, in essence, you didn't understand how good, how good I am. You didn't see my value and my worth. You didn't make me feel wanted. Don't ever do this to me, Melanie. <laughs> I don't even know where the Regency is. So you're fine. <laughs> And look what I built without you. And it's simultaneously a fuck you and a thank you because, of course, Axe's whole ethos boils down to came from nothing, right? Had to earn it. That's right. Had to earn it. Had to make sure he could feel seen, that other people understood what a brilliant man he is. So we get a lot of Axe backstory. Though. It mostly just reinforces what we already understood about his character. But crucially, of course, there's how this scene plays in conjunction with what is happening between Axe and Taylor. I consider Axe to be a smart man, right? We, flawed, though. Deeply flawed, but we've never really had... Well, this is actually, you know what, as I'm saying this, I was about to say we've never really had cause to doubt his judgment, but that is, of course, not true. 
the whole Sandicott disaster. He's made plenty of decisions that were obviously everything that happened with ice juice and how his desperation for what, you know, what Oren call, calls out for the win, the kill, ultimately uh, like led him to allow himself to be entrapped and then prosecuted. But there was something about this in particular where he didn't see, he couldn't recognize that the thing that he was attacking in somebody else is what he is actually now doing. It's it's a it's a mistakes of the father thing that is the subtext of the whole show. It goes it's the same with Chuck Senior and Chuck Junior. To not realize that he is literally about to commit the same sin against which he has been seeking vengeance for decades, probably at this right. point, um, you know, is also you mentioned Shakespeare. I mean, it is a Shakespearean conceit, and it's it's really well rendered in um, the con- the the idea of a person like Bill McGann. Bill McGann is a guy that I feel like I knew growing up on Long Island. You right. know, that's a sort of like white ethnic scrapper who made up, made something for himself and then presumed he was a kind of person who like took care of his own and then lost his way at times. But I don't know, in Axe, he like had a protege and lost a protege. Should Bill McGann be proud of what Axe was able to make for himself or should he hold that against him? It's, a, it's such an interesting, complex idea that, that's happening on the show. I think what, like one of the subtle distinctions, though, between those two parallel storylines is that we're, we're led to believe from the nature of what these two men say to each other that Bill, dear old Bill, maybe wasn't that into Axe, actually. Like, the the dollar amount in question here was $50,000. Taylor's talking about $50 million. Yeah. And this guy didn't think Axe was worth that small of a, a sum and also told Axe that he didn't have any Blarney, right? And then what's Bill's comeback? No, I didn't think you had any soul. So it's not the same. Like, Axe, despite the budding tension in his relationship with Taylor, actually thinks Taylor is great. There's a reason that Axe left Taylor in control of Axe Capital. When Lara is trying to convince Axe to spend more money and to bring Taylor back onto the race team, Lara says, you want Taylor gone, and Axe says emphatically, I don't want them gone. This is the, the result that is going to play out is not actually what Axe wants, and yet he's allowing it to happen because he doesn't see the mistake that he's making. Mal, what's, what's another pop culture reference? Let's see. Well, you already mentioned... Uh, your favorite Swedish guitarist. That's right. In Vengi Malmsteen. We're Got a, the rise, real heads. a rising force shout out here. As Some well Molly, as Molly Hatchet. Hatchet. Yeah. <laughs> great, great exchange between Taylor and their quant. Uh, we get a, a nice Trading Places reference oh, here. Oh, I missed that. What was uh, it? Wendy says, Mortimer Duke said it best, no getting around the old minimum wage. And Axe, of course, comes back with, actually, that was said to Mortimer Duke, but that's a hell of a pull. <laughs> A uh, couple more. Let's see. Pete Decker, who, I mean, man, Billion's ability to go back deep into the bench Your from season one. Your ability to know what that character's name is is astonishing <laughs> to me. I spent about 10 minutes last night looking for the name and couldn't find it. The the scene with Pete Decker where Chuck showed up at his kid's baseball game to threaten Pete Decker's parents oh, was yeah. like one of the moments where I was like, Chuck is actually the worst person That's in this right. show. That's right. Um, but we get a little House of Games uh, line reading from Pete Decker when he shows up to reveal Tyga's deception to Ira. He says, the bitch is a booster, the bitch is a board thief. If you have not seen House of Games, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Little known David Mamet film. What else here? We got. I got a few more. Do you have more? Should I keep going? I have a couple of more. You go ahead. This one was in my number two for me. Uh, it's it's our our pal Wags, mm. and it was that was the full Senor Roberto yes. 
The rent stays like before, which is a Godfather 2 reference, famously. And in that same scene, before that, Spiros had also gone to the Godfather 2 well with the, doesn't already get to wet his beak. <laughs> That's right. Uh, this is, I'm going to, this is a stretch, but because this is a thinly veiled George Clooney nod, I'm going to count this as a pop culture reference. Okay. When Lara and Wendy are drinking, Lara orders Casamigos. And then Wendy says, don't judge us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which, you know, hard not to, but. Uh, I have another one. Go ahead. Taylor's about to be paid the same as James Harden. I had that under sports references. That was a tremendous one. Just absolutely phenomenal. Really good stuff. We haven't said the two most essential words to this episode. The salt Highlander? Bay. No, Salt <laughs> Bay. Salt Bay's, salt Bay's starring role in, in Compenso is, is really something. I can't believe you brought me here. Thank you. I was surprised to learn the viral video so afflicted you. Oh, they don't, usually. But I mean... You know, we could just order the tomahawk and have him do his whole thing here at the table. Uh, no, I'm all right looking at the eclipse through the cereal box. I like the idea that Sacker has just been watching Salt Bay clips on like Vine and Instagram for for many months and now is in the presence of, you know, her her digital crush and, and can't bring herself to just say, Come salt my meat. Like gotta like admire him from afar. That's, and that's I want to be clear. Yeah, phrase. salt my meat is a euphemism for for sex. Ah, great. Thank you for that. <laughs> I don't know if I should feel more strongly about Sacker than I already do or less, given her her passion for the salt bay. She she can do no wrong in my books. Okay. She's really taken some of my uh, the affection that I used to reserve for Connerty, who is quickly losing all of my faith. We haven't even mentioned him. I mean, he has an entire storyline in this episode. What the hell is he doing? Uh, very tough. Let's like let's not talk about it. Okay. If it comes up in the finale, fine. Great. I will say da- I enjoyed Dake's beard, and I love the idea that he's at UVA. Yeah, that seems okay. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Chuck, we mentioned, we alluded to this earlier, quotes Hamlet when this is a normal thing to do on the couch at home with your wife. (laughs) I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. Very elegant reading. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, One of the things that I enjoy about a Billions episode is when they have the characters acknowledge the pop culture reference as it is happening. And so even though I am allergic to any scene that includes Lara, I still enjoyed the Highlander exchange that Lara and Axe had when Lara says, why can't you give Taylor what they want? And Axe says, because it's too much. And what they want can't be given. It needs to be taken. Another little mission statement there. Lara says, and what would you do if they tried to take it? Axe, cut them down like I was Connor McCloud. And then Lara says, what does it say that you always have to quote the damn Highlander? Axe that I spent some time watching cable TV alone in high school and that I had pristine taste in movies, even back then. <laughs> Very funny scene. Can I, can I share a confession? Please. I, I've never seen Highlander. So glad you said that. I've also not seen the Highlander, but I know that Clancy Brown, who plays Jock Jeffcoat, is in the Highlander. He plays Kurgan. And so I was wondering, I wonder if anybody has ever tracked because of the volume of pop culture references and the number of people on Billions, how many times a reference has been made to something that one of the actors on the show has been in? I love it. I don't know. <laughs> That's a great project for some enterprising young Ringer employee that will surely have them do. 
Uh, I guess there's a couple more. A Wii magazine. You know, oh, yeah. the, the stack that yeah. is gifted to Wags yeah. as part of his uh, bonus compensation. You haven't seen Highlander, but you've, you've thumbed through a, a Wii magazine. I may be familiar yeah. with Wii magazine. Um, <laughs> the famous French <laughs> smut mag. Um, you know, I also liked uh, the reference. This is not a reference. It's a human being. But Patty Darbinville as uh, uh, Axe's mom, who's a very mm-hmm. well-known figure of the 70s and 80s, a model and an actress, yeah. who I really haven't seen in anything in like 15 years. Yeah. She just kind of came out of nowhere. I really enjoyed that conversation. It was good, good scene. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. There's a uh, lots of axe history in this episode. So much, and there was that one really key moment where after Axe's mom says your father was your first great enemy, and he says, "Yeah, well, if you abandon your kid, that's what you get." Which like maybe show up to Gordy's birthday party if you're going to be saying these things. Yeah, wounds don't heal. Yeah, though know. there is a moment when Lyra comes over to his apartment and he's like. You're not supposed to pick up the kids till tomorrow. So we know he is seeing them. Anyway, but the key line from his mom right after that is when he's talking about mouthing off as a kid and coming back at her. And she says, you know, maybe I should have told you not to talk that way. And he's like, I still probably would have, right? And then she says, sure, but you also would have had a little voice in the back of your head telling you not to. Do you have that voice at all? And, like, he doesn't, at least not anymore, or that's how it feels right now. In much the same way that his father probably didn't, that Bill McGann didn't, that Chuck Sr. didn't, that all these father figures are bad actors, and they're right at the heart of this story. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, When Chuck was holding the Texas cowboy hat that Carl had given him, and Chuck says, it's going to be like Chris Ledoux came back to life in here. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, another— Musician, right? Yeah. And then Chuck to Anthony during the interrogation, you're like that James Wood character, James Woods character in Casino. I love that. <laughs> or maybe more just like James Woods. Um, we got a Cal Ripken reference also. Did we? Yeah, from Ira. Well, good. Let's go O's. Feel the magic. Mm-hmm. When when Chuck uh, is lamenting that he wasn't Ira's best man, and Ira's like, you know. He couldn't be the best man at all my weddings. And he says, wouldn't have made you Cal Ripken, but it would have been nice to keep the streak going. I love that. We also got another sports reference. Uh, Wags, when Wags and Axe are talking about whether uh, Axe can get through comp day without Lara's advice, which again, I just am totally befuddled by this. And Axe says, yeah, I got my Kevin Rooney. I'll be fine. You know, boxing trainer. Oh, I missed that too. Yeah. You're always so prepared for this. There's one more that we haven't mentioned. Another sports reference. Great Creek. That's the one. Incredible. Spiros. That could have been the most scarring moment. <laughs> Every time I look at Spiros's face, um, I want to vomit. It's awful. There actually is one more pop culture reference, which I neglected. We talked about Anthony, Tyga's paramour. Do you know who that person is who was playing Anthony? Why did he look so familiar to me? I ran out of time to Google this. His name's Alex Moffat. He's a cast member on SNL, and I would say one of the most promising oh, young yes, cast yes, members yes, yes, in this Oh, yes, 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 of course. Different hair. Uh, different hair. He's probably best known as portraying Joe Scarborough and Eric Trump. Of and course. he famously plays the guy with the tiny penis on SNL's uh, Weekend Update. Maybe maybe rehashing this role last night? I don't know. It's good he's, stuff. He's keeping Tyga with something. So. Anthony Redayelli? What was his name? I just stuck with Anthony in okay. my notes. All right. <laughs> um, let's move on to MVP and LVP. Do you have a clear MVP for I, this episode? It's a know, tough one for MVPs. I, I wrote down Axe and Chuck, even though I think they both took huge L's. I think maybe we should award both MVP and LVP to both of them. Axe is my LVP. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that they both made clearly strong, definitive moves. 
Um, you know, you can make the case that Chuck's plan to eventually take down Jock Jeffcoat is intriguing by utilizing the New York State Attorney General to draw out Jock Jeffcoat by right. essentially pursuing an indictment against his brother, even though he would not be able to convict his brother of any wrongdoing. Right. So there's this moment when in the conversation of his Peter Luger meal with Ira, which, by the way, the way that steak was sizzling on the plate, you could really see, you could smell it and you could taste it. What, what, Just incredible. So that was not at Salt Bay's restaurant. That's second that was scene. Pe- the second scene was Peter Luger. Got it. Okay. And there's that great moment when Chuck's like, you, you need some, you want some salt? And Ira's like, doesn't need it. Love it. The true heads, you know? Sure. But I got a whole Peter Luger take, but I'll save it for <laughs> off mic. When Ira is saying that the, the one thing that he feared actually happened, which is, was, you know, the, the, the realization, the confirmation that Tiger was cheating on him, didn't end up being the worst thing because they moved beyond it and now they are together, even though, of course, she doesn't actually want to be with him, but he seems to be okay with that. Who wants that? I don't know. Ira, okay. I guess. So something He needs something other than an egg cream at 3 a.m., mm-hmm. you know? And that is like a light bulb epiphany moment for Chuck where he's like, oh, the thing that I've been trying to avoid is Jock Jeffcoat finding out that someone is, pers- specifically that he is pursuing them. And he's, oh, okay, here's some wisdom. Maybe I want him to find out. Because if he does, he will try to stop this. And then we can get him for obstruction of justice. So that is Chuck's new plan. And- it just strikes me as classic Chuck maneuvering in a way that cannot possibly work out in his favor and will almost surely lead to his downfall in some capacity. Maybe a downfall he can recover from because he tends to be able to do that. But first of all, he's just at this point has already revealed his plan to too many people. So basically saying you're like my human shield, you uh, uh, state attorney general, Epstein, (laughs) just just phenomenal. (laughs) You go do this. And first of all, it is not in Chuck's nature to not actually want credit for the win. And so you know he's like, he couldn't recuse himself. Famously couldn't actually recuse himself from the Axe case earlier in the show's run. That's often how he gets into trouble. He can't help but meddle. And so he will not be able to stay out of this. You know that. Well, we do know that he essentially is going to be encouraging Jeff Coat to interfere somehow, you know, that that's part of the plan, which I think at least makes him useful in his own scheme. But here is the one, even though I'm kind of out on the Connerty storyline now, and I have loved Connerty for a long time, so that's tough for me. This is the one area where I'm still in on Connerty. Why did he say when Jock Jeffcoat goes to the FBI and says, like, spy on, spy on the government? Basically, I want to know who's trying to undermine me. Is this just a bad, a bad agent? Is something more nefarious afoot here? Connerty volunteers to lead this effort. Why? He heard that FBI agent say that he was running an off-books op for Chuck. He's just, all of this is about Connerty trying to get more dirt on Chuck, and that's what he takes to Dake. And he will find it. They would not be setting up this storyline if Connerty wasn't going to unearth something damaging about what Chuck is doing. Connerty has now a moment with Jeffcoat where he won his admiration by saying, I'll get this done for you. So now he's in Jeff Coates' favor. If he finds dirt on Chuck and takes it to him, that's not good for Chuck. Now, Billions is not going to be a show where Jock Jeffcoat wins in the end. But... Let, let, let me share just like a broad criticism of the show. It's a show that I love. We, I was very clear about it up top. I love to think about... I love just in, in, indulging in the dialogue and I love the characters and I love even the themes of the show. I don't really like 
the grand plan, the grand narrative plans of the show because it is so riven to these two primary figures who ultimately have to survive. They have to survive to the very end till they have their final showdown. The show is built around their showdown. And so, you know, the machinations of whether Jock Jeffcoat can, you know, discover Chuck's thing and whether Connerty can finally undermine him, yada, 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 like it ultimately feels bound by this primary feud. And all this other stuff is just kind of noise. Like, I, just, I don't spend a lot of time, and, and you know this as the, the lordess of binge mode and the way that you're able to analyze the deep construction of all these long-running stories. A lot of the time, you're like, well, we want to get to the end and find out what happens at the end. And so we have to analyze every single tick in, in that, on that clock. And for whatever reason on this show, like, it just doesn't really lend itself to that. The minute I start doing that and thinking, like, what will happen mm-hmm. in, in to the 2021 season of this show, I kind of lose interest. Interesting. I am of two minds on this. On the one hand, I agree with you completely. And it's part of the reason that even though, of course, this is where the Taylor storyline was going, the, sh- the entire season has been leading to this moment of Taylor saying, Time for my own shop. And of course, we have a moment earlier in the show where Axe says, you don't have your own shop. Well, there's only going to be one thing that happens after he says that out loud. They might. But even though it was clear that that was going to happen, I didn't want it to because I don't want the Taylor-Axe relationship and that dynamic to be a short-term storyline that ultimately falls by the wayside because it's not the main point. And so that is sort of a bummer to me. However, I said I am of two minds because the other part of it is that I do think there's a moment at the end of season two where as glorious and absurdly decadently wonderful as the ice juice plot is, you do say to yourself, can every season just end with Axe and Chuck shouting at each other in a room? Like those scenes are amazing, but it can't just be the beat that every season ends on. And so I think it's actually important to try new things and to go in a different direction and to create new foils for each of the primary protagonists, even if we are leading back there in the end. I agree with you and I'm absolutely ready to be proven wrong and to learn that actually the architecture of the show is this long quest for Connerty and Taylor to upend you know, the, the, those father figures that, that I've been talking about in this episode, it's plausible that that happens. Um, I'm not so sure that it will happen because of things like contracts and right. star power, but you never can tell. This is a good segue into looking ahead to next week. Yes. So what do we think is, I mean, I, I think One we can only speculate left. so much that we're going into a finale. Finales of shows like this, as we've come to learn over the last five to 10 years, are often a little less satisfying and a little less... Um, narratively aggressive than the penultimate episodes. It's it's fun to be doing this episode with you because we knew it would have some consequence and it certainly did by the end. Um, I I don't know where you think we'll end up. Will will we see the end of, we're not going to see the end of the Clancy Brown character, you know, the the John Jeff. So that's going to go into season Season four. four. Yeah. Obviously everything that happens with Taylor is going to have to bleed over into season four. I think we've probably seen the end of Ira for a while. Hmm. Every time we see Ira, I think we've seen the end of Ira. I, know. I think we did an episode once. It was very Ira-centric. <laughs> yeah, and I thought that would be episode. the end of Ira yeah. as well. And, but. and here Ira is again. You know, certainly Axe will find out that Taylor is opening their own shop again. Will I Will he even find out next episode? I think so because there was a discuss- an active discussion about time frame and about needing this to be ready soon. And so the question, I think, is does Taylor go on the cap raise and try to 
basically steal those investors and that yes. money. That seems like the most likely thing. And then at that point, there's no forgiveness. Turn about Axe. a fair play there with the right. Oliver situation. Many people have gone to Axe and said, give me my own shop. And he has done that. Of course, because he thinks he can use that money to further his own ends. He does not re- respond well to people betraying him. And that there's no way that he will perceive this as anything but a, a betrayal. I have no idea what's coming for Wendy. I'm kind of bummed about that. I was so invested in Wendy. I want more for Wendy. Though I will say, Wendy getting a bonus. Now, tell me if I'm wrong here. Did Wendy get $22 million? I thought he said double. Of what, though? The ice juice profits. I might be wrong here. It's definitely possible that I'm going to just make a big factor at the end of this podcast, which would be annoying. But if so, don't tweet at me. We're living in real time. The ice juice, the trick that they pull on the doctor, that where they're basically hiding the money and making it look like it was his, I'm pretty sure that was an $11 million total. So then she exceeded his the total bonus compensation he's ever given because he mentioned he's never given more than 20. Right. He goes up to 25 for for Taylor. If if that math is right and maybe it isn't, Wendy gets 22. Poor old Wags only gets nine? Homie's got to sustain his Michter celebration habit somehow. I don't really know. a bottle. I don't really know what Wags does. He's um, the, the, the bulwark of Axe <laughs> Capital. <laughs> that's, that's what Axe says. Well put, though I'm not sure that he know, has any real instincts. He, he's there as like a, a joke closer. Right. Uh, which is a great role. No, I love f- that. Phenomenal. Um, what will Grigor Andaloff do in the finale? Decide whether or not he's going to appear in season four. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's if he decides to collaborate with Taylor in any significant way, probably means we get three more episodes of Malkovich in season four. And if not, or if m- maybe Grigor uh, decides to turn on Taylor and bring that information to Axe, and then that really kicks off what would be season four, which would be the you know the, the showdown between those two figures. Oh, that's compelling to me. It's in play, though. Why would Malkovich have any? real interest in Taylor, ultimately. But flip side is, why would he have any loyalty to Axe? They've bonded, certainly, but we also know that he's a shark. He's a killer. He will take anyone down. Anyone, at any point. It's all about the bottom line for him. Checkoffs don't lose any of my money, you know? Well done. (laughs) This has been a Russian handgun of a scene. Um, Now, thanks for doing this. Thanks for doing this. I look forward to uh, either dancing on Jock's grave with you or uh, seeing him do the tush push on ours. Totally traumatized. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of The Recapables Billions. Mm-hmm.